for me, um, North Carolina fascinates me because I have not found a state, another state with as many convicted female serial poisoners as North Carolina. Now that, I don't know why the Chamber of Commerce doesn't make more use of that um, as, a, as a drawing card. Um, but uh, so, so Eastern North Carolina, Charlotte itself doesn't have any, but Eastern North Carolina had its, uh, had its share of some really scary women. <laughs> so, and, and they're scattered throughout North Carolina, which I find fascinating. I believe there may be one, isn't there one in Di the Denver area right now that they're trying to convince? Yes, there is. I think that's the eye drop case. Yeah, the, yeah, the poison with eye drops case. Yeah. But then yeah. they started looking back and I think she had a, a previous spouse that had also More, passed yeah. away. So they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that recently. Yeah. But you're right. I was thinking about that when you were talking about it earlier about Marie Hilly. Yeah. And yeah. Well, you have, Blanche, you have Blanche Taylor Moore, Velma Barfield. A lot of people don't know Nanny Doss because she was caught and, and incarcerated in another state, but she was here in North Carolina too. She was called a giggling grandma. And more recently, you had Ann Miller um, in Raleigh. Who, who and, and what fascinates me is they use arsenic. It's one of the most traceable of poisons, but hospitals still miss it because you're not expecting it. You know, and, um, you know, <laughs> my husband will be watching one of these crime shows on TV and, and he'll look at me and he says, he says, tingling in the extremities. That's arsenic. Is <laughs> so, <laughs> people, people ask him if he's, if he's ever worried, but no, he's not. He teases about it. But, but it's fascinating to me because, you know, it's happened in other states and, and yet, um, and, and, and people are caught, but poison is a very sneaky crime. It's typically a female crime, although the book I'm working on now, there's a guy who was convicted of it. Um, but to me, that's just a very Southern um, sort of genteel sort of particularly cruel, horrible way to kill somebody, but we see it as, you know, somehow removed and distant. So. Arsenic is a chemical element that occurs naturally in the earth. In its raw state, it's not harmful, but it becomes poisonous when converted to arsenic trioxide, commonly known as white arsenic. It's odorless and colorless, so knowing you've been exposed to it can be difficult. Arsenic poisoning is painful, and symptoms include abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, abnormal heart rhythm, muscle cramps, skin lesions, and the numbing of fingers and toes. In the late 1830s, a British chemist named James Marsh created a method for detecting arsenic, but for a long time, it was an easy way to cause someone a death that could mimic natural causes. The clip you just heard was from an interview I had with true crime author Kathy Pickens in episode 13. For this episode, I thought I would discuss a few of the women in North Carolina who were eventually convicted of murdering a number of people by means of poison, usually through common household items such as ant or rat poison, which contained arsenic. It's a very diabolical way to murder someone, and the victims suffered greatly before their deaths. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years from murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, 
in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. Every other week we'll take a brief look at some of these crimes, solved or unsolved, and learn more about the darker part of our region. I'm Renee Robertson, and this is True Crime in the Carolinas. Episode 37, North Carolina Women Who Poisoned, Velma Barfield and Blanche Taylor Moore. On November 2nd, 1984, a 52-year-old woman named Margie Velma Barfield was executed by lethal injection at the Central Prison in Raleigh. It was a controversial time in North Carolina's history. The day before her execution, Velma asked that her attorneys abandon any further appeals targeted at winning a last-minute stay from the United States Supreme Court. Before Velma's execution, North Carolina had put a moratorium on executions beginning in 1962. I was able to find the most information in a document housed on the University of North Carolina Library's site pertaining to the state's history of capital punishment. Velma Barfield was convicted of murdering then-boyfriend Stuart Taylor in 1978 with ant poison, but he wasn't her only victim. Velma's life started out quite ordinary. One of nine children, Margie Velma Bullard was raised with her siblings on a tobacco and cotton farm in South Carolina. Raised in a strict Pentecostal household, she dropped out of school at the age of 17 to marry a young man named Thomas Burke. They had two children together, but problems surfaced after Thomas was in a car accident that left him with debilitating migraines, which he then tried to numb with alcohol. In 1969, while Velma and the kids were out running errands, the house caught on fire, trapping Thomas inside while he was likely passed out. He died of smoke inhalation. Not long after Thomas's death, Velma met a widow named Jennings Barfield, and they were married in August of 1970. However, Jennings died of what appeared to be heart failure just a few months later in the spring of 1971. After that, Velma moved in with her parents in Fayetteville so they could help with her children. Velma's father passed away during that time from lung cancer. In mid-1974, Velma's mother Lillian began experiencing stomach pains and discomfort, spending a few days in the hospital, but doctors were unable to pinpoint the source of her pain. By the end of that year, Lillian was experiencing severe stomach pains once again and died shortly after going back into the hospital. An autopsy was not performed. What Lillian did not know was that somewhere along the way, Velma had become addicted to prescription painkillers. She spent some time in prison in 1975 for writing bad checks. After her release, she secured a job caring for an elderly couple, 94-year-old Montgomery Edwards and his 84-year-old wife, Dolly. In January of 1977, Montgomery died, with Molly dying only a few weeks later after developing a stomach virus. After their deaths, Velma continued her work as a home health nurse and was reassigned to work with a new couple, John Henry and Record Lee. In June of that year, John Henry died of what his doctors could only determine was a severe stomach virus. At this point, 
You may be wondering how Velma escaped suspicion with so many people she was taking care of dying of mysterious stomach illnesses. But I think it was the next victim where Velma got sloppy. After John Lee Henry's death, Velma moved in with a boyfriend named Stuart Taylor. While at a Pentecostal revival in Cumberland County, North Carolina, he began complaining of, what else, stomach pains. He passed away a few days later while in the hospital. The hospital ordered an autopsy, but before the results were released, Velma's sister called the police, telling them Velma had confessed to poisoning Stuart by lacing his tea with ant poison. When interrogated by the police, Velma confessed to poisoning Stuart, her mother, John Henry Lee, and Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. The motive for these murders was that Velma had been stealing from them to support her drug habit, and she murdered them with poison before her crimes could be discovered. Velma Barfield was convicted of the murder of Stuart Taylor in 1978, and the jury recommended the death penalty due to aggravating circumstances. While she had confessed to the five murders, she never admitted to murdering her first husband, Thomas Burke, or her second husband, Jennings Barfield. But the fact that Thomas died in a suspicious fire and Jennings from a sudden illness does make me wonder. Before her death, Velma considered herself a born-again Christian and drew support from Billy and Ruth Graham. They petitioned on her behalf for her death sentence to be commuted, but were not successful, likely due to political reasons. A New York Times article noted, Mrs. Barfield's execution, just four days before Election Day, may be a factor in the close Senate race here between Governor James B. Hunt Jr., the Democrat, who six weeks ago denied an appeal for clemency on behalf of Mrs. Barfield, and Senator Jesse Helms, who is a Republican. Everything Barfield says it. drugs led her to prison. She became addicted to tranquilizers, she says, during a rocky period in her life. The last 10 years was just like that, uh, years of a drug nightmare. Days of not knowing where you are or what you've done. Next, I'd like to talk about Blanche Taylor Moore. I only realized recently that North Carolina's oldest death row inmate is an 88-year-old woman named Blanche Taylor Moore. I came upon this realization after watching the Oxygen Network's true crime show Snapped a few months ago, having been intrigued by a promo that it was featuring Southern cases. I remember there being a pretty creepy made-for-TV movie starring actress Elizabeth Montgomery back in the 1990s that told the story of a Southern black widow, but I had no idea how much evil permeated from Blanche Taylor Moore until I dug a little further into her backstory. Blanche Kaiser Taylor Moore was born in Concord, North Carolina, married a young man named James Taylor in 1952. They had two children together, and she began a lifelong career working as a cashier at the Kroger chain of grocery stores. Apparently, she began an affair with a man named Raymond Reed, the manager of the store she worked at. In 1973, her husband James passed away from what doctors thought was a heart attack. Blanche and Raymond took their relationship public after her husband died, but it had numerous ups and downs. In 1985, Blanche supposedly began a relationship with another Kroger manager, Kevin Denton, but eventually she filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against him and the grocery store. 
she settled out of court with Kroger for $275,000 a few years later. Blanche seemed to present two different sides of herself to the public. Her co-workers at Kroger later described her as crass and lewd, and it's no secret she liked to pass the time with male co-workers at the store. But she also cultivated a sweet church lady persona, attending regular church services around town and always being willing to serve up pie, sweetened iced tea, and banana pudding. Especially banana pudding. In April of 1985, while she was still casually dating Raymond Reed, Blanche met Reverend Dwight Moore at a local church. He was pretty quickly smitten with her and clearly had no idea of her troubled past. At the end of May, Raymond Reed was admitted to a hospital in Greensboro for severe nausea and vomiting. His condition worsened and he had to be transported across one town over to Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem. By September, he began recovering and Blanche talked him into making her the executor of his estate. Not long after, nurses observed her bringing Raymond treats like milkshakes and banana pudding and feeding them to him. He died in October of 1986, the origins of his illness remaining a mystery to the doctors. Within a month, Blanche had an engagement ring from the Reverend Moore. I have to wonder, did he even know she was visiting a sick lover in the hospital while they were dating? Wedding plans were put on hold when Reverend Moore became hospitalized with nausea and vomiting. He overcame his bout of illness, and the two were eventually married in April of 1987. Reverend Moore was back in the hospital before the honeymoon was even over. Blanche continued to visit him in the hospital and bring him food. His organs began failing, and doctors had an idea to test his blood for heavy metals, because he had recently done some gardening and used insecticides. The test came back positive for arsenic. Reverend Moore had a hundred times the normal amount in his body. Thus began the unraveling of a most curious web of a black widow. Reverend Moore mentioned to investigators that Blanche had a boyfriend who had died of an unknown illness. Five different bodies were exhumed, those of Raymond Reed, Blanche's father, her mother-in-law, her first husband, and a co-worker. The male co-worker didn't have any arsenic in his body, but everyone else did. Raymond Reed's arsenic levels were 30 times higher than the normal limit. On July 18, 1989, Blanche Taylor Moore was arrested and charged with the death of Raymond Reed and assault with a deadly weapon in the case of Reverend Moore. During the trial, Blanche made sure to dress demurely and wear a pair of oversized glasses. Her defense was to deny, deny, deny. She denied about having ever brought Raymond Reed or Reverend Moore food in the hospital. She denied ever knowing what the bug poison anti-ant was, although witnesses had seen her buy it in hardware stores, and she even asked Reverend Moore to buy it for her. He had no clue she'd turn around and poison him with it. Blanche was convicted to death, but had her sentence commuted to life in prison in 2010. I had a hard time trying to figure out exactly why Blanche poisoned so many people. Was it her way of exacting revenge? I guess she could have received life insurance in the case of her first husband, but I couldn't find any evidence of that. She did receive part of Raymond Reed's estate, 
and oddly enough, his sons were fine with her receiving it at the time. They had no idea that she had murdered their father. And she began poisoning Reverend Moore before they were even married. What was the point of that? Part of me wonders if she had an illness where she enjoyed the attention she received when caring for ill loved ones, similar to Munchausen by proxy. Or maybe she was just plain evil. Author Jim Schultz wrote a book about Blanche Taylor Moore titled Preacher's Girl, The Life and Crimes of Blanche Taylor Moore. I may have to check it out and see if I can dig deeper into the origins of this case that took place in my home state. There's another woman who lived briefly in North Carolina who was also convicted of poisoning several victims with arsenic, including two of her children. Her name was Nanny Doss, and she became known as the Giggling Grandma. Between the years of 1920 and 1954, she suspected of killing at least 11 people, including four of her husbands, her mother, her sister, her grandson, and a mother-in-law. She murdered a man named Arlie Lanning, whom she had met through the personal ads in the newspaper and married in Lexington, North Carolina. No one suspected anything when Arlie turned up dead of what was believed to be heart failure, and apparently the whole town showed up in support of her after his death. Then the home they shared together burned to the ground. Nanny quickly banked the insurance money, even though the property should have been left to a sister of Arlie's, and Arlie's mother had recently died in her sleep. Nanny's luck ran out when police were suspicious after her fifth husband, Samuel Doss of Oklahoma, had an autopsy that showed high levels of arsenic in his body. She eventually confessed to all her crimes, was sentenced to life in prison in 1955. Nanny died of leukemia in prison about 10 years later. This brings us to the conclusion of True Crime in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.